Pop Culture Affidavit, episode 33. There was this TV show. Hello and welcome to episode 33 of Pop Culture Affidavit, a podcast that takes a look at everything random in the world of popular culture. I'm your host, Tom Panneries. I'm continuing my look at 1994, the most important year of the 90s, with a special two-parter that is going to celebrate one of my favorite television shows of all time, My So-Called Life. This first part will be a solo podcast, as I'll do what I usually do, which is talk about the show, how I came to be a fan, and what its impact has been on me uh, personally. Then in the next episode, which will drop next week, I will be talking to several different people who are also fans of the show, and will discuss the show and its legacy from several angles. Uh, The reason this is coming out on Monday, as opposed to Thursday, is that the day this is coming out is the 20th anniversary of the air date of the very first episode, so... And next week would be yet another one. So I thought, well, let me do that. Let me release the the two episodes and the date that actual episodes of the show aired back in 1994. So my hope is by the end of the episode, you'll be able to see why I consider this one of the most important television shows of my lifetime and understand the impact it's had on me both as a person and uh, as a writer. All right, wannabe writer. But you know what I mean. So I'm going to take a break and I'm going to come back with my so-called origin story. This is an imaginary podcast, which may never have happened. The Shortbox Showcase. But then again may have. About a father and daughter... I'm Professor Allen. And I'm Emily. Who came from Ohio and talked about comics. Walking Dead. Tintin. Black Lightning. White Tiger. It tells of their rise to glory, when the great guests were yet to be booked. Let's put it this way, Shogun Warriors wasn't going to win any Eisners. And the great feats of editing not yet performed. This is Ultra 7, this is Ultraman Jack, and this is Ultraman Taro, and this is Ultraman Leo, and this Ultra- Of how they spoke at length. Continuity is really the brainchild of nitpicking nerds the world over. But to be fair, the best kind of confession is the Force Confession. And reviewed in brief tales that explore creatively the bounds of a given character's history. 
Red Sun is wonderful with a very strange ending. Of brilliant creators before their fall from grace. This is the era where Miller is at the height of his creative and artistic powers. And the ability of strong writing to encapsulate and transcend its time. Flash of Two Earths by Gardner Fox. This is an imaginary podcast. Aren't they all? Shortbox Showcase is part of the Relatively Geeky family of podcasts. Check us out on the web at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com or search in iTunes for Relatively Geeky or Shortbox Showcase. And remember, we're not experts. We're just family. The much-loved television series My So-Called Life is finally on DVD. People always say how you should be yourself. Like, yourself is this definite thing, like a toaster or something. Starring Claire Danes, My So-Called Life finally receives the deluxe treatment it deserves. Love is when you look into someone's eyes and suddenly you go all the way inside. So, Ricky, Angel's in love with Jordan Catalano. We have to help her. This doesn't seem like a Friday. It's Thursday. Oh. The complete series is offered on six DVDs, loaded with special features, including commentaries, featurettes with the cast and creators, a brand new interview with Claire Danes, plus a 40-page book. What's amazing is when you can feel your life going somewhere, like your life just figured out how to get good. Like that second. So maybe this is what people mean when they talk about, you know, life. My so-called life on DVD from Shout Factory. It was the first teen drama that didn't feel like an after-school special. No one ever learned a very important lesson out of the phrase, I love you, Dad. Angela acted like a 15-year-old with all the crying jags and Buffalo Tom concert that implies. What's even more impressive is that anyone who watched the show back in the 90s when angst and manic panic felt totally of the moment can now enjoy it on a very different level. Suddenly, Angela's parents are relatable. Now, that's not me. Um, That's Entertainment Weekly from August 3rd, 2012, and it's 25 best cult TV shows from the past 25 years piece. But it's quite possibly one of the most succinct ways of summing up my so-called life, or MSCL, as fans like myself have typed it out for years on the internet. The show, in case you're not familiar with it, was the creation of Winnie Holtzman, who was a writer on the show 30-something, and the show was produced by 30-somethings producers Marshall Herskovitz and Edward Zwick. In fact, if you've ever watched that particular show, 30-something, you can see its influence on my so-called life. And I do remember seeing a few reviews here and there that referred to the show as 15-something. But really, that's an unfair evaluation because while it did have the same vibe as as its predecessor at times, it definitely had its own feel. And that's because of its main character, Angela Chase, who is played by Claire Danes. She was like a new Molly Ringwald. And although the show was an ensemble... Angela's voiceovers throughout the series led us into her head and gave us her observations as the various plots progressed. But I'm getting ahead of myself here. 
as I wanted to start with my so-called origin story and give a little bit of a history of the show before I get into the particulars of its 19 episodes. And to do that, I have to go back to the summer of 1994 when I was sitting at home one afternoon flipping through TV Guide and saw a picture of Claire Danes' Angela Chase along with an article about this new show that would be premiering on Thursday, August 25th at 8 o'clock p.m. on ABC. I sat and read, and I remember thinking that I really wanted to see the show. I can't exactly remember what it was. I just... All right, I probably saw Claire Danes and thought, hey, she's cute, and decided to give the show a look. And school hadn't started yet, so I didn't have any homework or anything else that would actually have taken away from my time sitting in front of the television. But I watched it. I went and watched it. I watched the first episode, and I remember being amazed at how realistic the school and the teenage characters seem. Remember, with the exception of the old Degrassi series, which I hadn't watched in oh, at least four or five years, every show that I had seen geared toward teenagers didn't exactly put them into realistic situations. Nobody I knew looked at Beverly Hills 90210, Saved by the Bell, California Dreams, or anything else that might have been on TV, and said, wow, they're exactly like us. Then again, we knew that all those shows were essentially escapist fantasy anyway, but I'd also... At the time I was watching the first episode of My So-Called Life, I was kind of feeding myself a steady diet of 1980s teen movies, some of which were very fantasy in a sense. Your Can't Buy Me Love, for instance. But some of them had a decent amount of reality to them. Fast Times at Ridgemont High, which I'll eventually cover. And and so so the good ones in that in that genre did mix fantasy and reality very, very effectively. And I think I was, at 17, longing for a piece of entertainment that I felt that I could connect to. My so-called life proved to be just that, even though um, I thought the parental dialogue was a little too forced, like that's how people thought parents should talk in television shows. And by the way, having watched the pilot more times than I can count, I don't think this anymore. Um, I think I was just naive when I was 17 and realized, you know, Adults actually do have conversations like that. Still, it really hit a nerve, and and I came back the next week, uh, especially after my creative writing teacher, because school had started. Mrs. Tabor made a comment on the first day of school about how good the show was. I think she actually looked at it, she's like, you have to watch this show. Or like, you should watch this show. Um, and I, I know that makes me sound lame, but she was one of my favorite teachers, and so it was like this weird sort of validation for me at the time. I was a nerd, overachieving nerd in high school, so, you know, that's you're going to get. Anyway, that should be the end of my so-called origin story. I discovered the show, I watched the show, but it's not because I didn't see every episode during its initial run. Why? Well, a variety of reasons. First, uh, once the school year started up, I started getting homework. And I know a lot of people tend to blow off senior year, but I was taking AP Calculus, AP Bio, AP Government, so I wound up with a lot of reading to do on a regular basis and a lot of homework to do on a regular basis. Second, I wound up landing a job as a stock boy at Marshall's. And I mean, it only lasted about two months because I had to keep getting my dad to pick me up from work because I didn't have a car. And I was constantly up past midnight working on the homework that I had not done because I had been at work. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to quit because it's just getting in the way of everything. My grades were slipping. Not t- a ton, but I was just I was overwhelmed. And finally, the other reason um, I didn't watch this uh, every week was 
there were other things on TV at the time. Now, CBS had premiered Due South, with which I didn't watch. I think failed after a season. Fox still had Martin and Living Single, which I also didn't watch. But NBC, Thursday nights at 8 o'clock in 1994, had Mad About You. And then at 8.30, this show called Friends premiered. Yeah, so when it came, and, and then Seinfeld was on at 9. So when it came to ratings, a show that was realistic about a suburban family, a show that was realistic about teenagers, a show that allowed its audience to feel for its characters and sometimes even feel uncomfortable for its characters, didn't stand a chance against must-see TV. I have nothing against must-see TV. In fact, in fact, it's getting its own episode later in this year because this was really like one of the more powerful years or powerful eras of the must-see TV uh, era of NBC. But like I said, I watched, I'd say, about half of the 19 episodes when they were first on the air. I was casually following the series, and I remember being a little disappointed when I read that the last episode was set to air on and set to air. It was January 26, 1995. And I made a note. I made a note to watch it. And I saw this. I saw the plot. I saw the episode. It was a Cyrano de Bergerac inspired plot. And I remember feeling it, feeling sad to see it go. But and, and you know, and and had had it just been that, I probably wouldn't have been that much of a fan of it afterward. But then there was that last scene, and and I'll talk about that later on. But but it's a for me, it was a gut punch of a scene. And it stayed with me for quite a while. To the point where when the show was being rerun, I picked up on it again and and rediscovered it. And and things kind of went from there. Because the show, even though the show aired its final episode in January of 95, it did stick around to a certain extent. MTV picked it up. They started airing reruns that spring, and it gained an even bigger following. Uh, there are quite a number of stories about how this almost helped save the show, as well as a campaign by fans over the internet to save the show, uh, neither of which obviously worked. The fan campaign is important to note, though, because it was like it was the first to use the internet for the campaign. I mean, nowadays, fan boards and campaigns and things like that on the internet are... are are all over the ubiquitous. This was back in 1994. Um, I didn't have internet access in 94 either, 94, 95. I didn't get it until I was in college that fall. But so this was a, this was actually, there's something pioneering about the Save the Show campaign. But um, I'm not going to get really get into the details of the show cancellation because I don't want to get too much into the behind the scenes anyway. And, you know, I, I, I want to spend these two episodes celebrating the show rather than, you know, burying it, so to speak. So, and it's been 20 years anyway. I mean, I remember when I found out the show had officially been <laughs> axed by ABC. I can tell you that because I was sitting in the barber shop and I was because uh, I was going to get a haircut and I was flipping through an issue of Spin because it was the only, the only magazine aside from like um, people that they had there. And and uh, and there was a blurb in there that started. Now we'll never see Brian Krakow get laid. Yeah, stay classy, Spin. But really. If you want information about the show's cancellation, anything about the behind the scenes, or anything else, you must go to MSCL.com. That is the unofficial website of the show. It is a fan site, but it is... Those of you guys who are in my listening audience who are comic geeks, um, it is the my so-called life equivalent of the Superman homepage or the Batman universe. It is just this comprehensive site 
about the show and the the site's been up since the mid 90s it's been it's been updated you know it's it's been given an update every every so often to keep it up with the times but but it is it has been around that long and it has it has scripts it has graphics it has clips it has um old press clippings it is it is just this for this show that lasted six months or so in in the fall and winter of ninety four ninety five. It is just the most comprehensive source for information about it. It is great. It is a great great show. Um, and personally, uh, it is where I found a mailing list, a list serve that I've been on since two thousand. Uh, and and uh, the people who are going to be on that show have been at one time or another listees. So um, there's uh, MSCL.com is, a, is just um, just as important to me as the television show was. But once again, I'm getting ahead of myself because in the spring of 95, MTV starts airing the show. In fact, I remember at one point watching an episode uh, that fall in uh, my friend Valerie's dorm room over in Hammerman Hall in Loyola. And uh, they're running... I remember that like, they had half the screen was... Um, was the show, but had like the bottom half of the screen was like an AOL chat room of people like talking about the show. And Val had like a small TV. It was like, what I think it, it might've been like one of those TV in VCR and TV combo things, which weren't very big. And, um, so you couldn't see the show very well. And there was something I like, I guess they could and MTV considered that innovative at the time. I mean, it was something quaint about attempts to create synergy between television and the internet in the mid nineteen nineties. You know, <laughs> and MTV really wouldn't get that down until a few years later when they started with this. When they started putting the scrolling shout out bar on TRL, the chat room thing. Like I said, I didn't really give a crap what Silly Girl Fifteen had to say about Jordan Catalano. I wanted to see the show again, <laughs> and. I now have the show on DVD. Shout Factory put out this gorgeous set from 2007. Um, you heard this trailer for it at the beginning of the segment. Amanda gave it to me for my birthday a few years ago. It's worth the money, too. The packaging is gorgeous. The featurettes are wonderful. There's a booklet full of great stuff. It's Shout Factory, when when they get the chance to do it, they put um, they do a great job with DVD collections. They they On the TV level, some of their collections feel like Criterion Collection DVDs. But in 95, I didn't have a DVD player. I don't know if DVDs exist. They probably did exist, but but nobody had a DVD player back in 1995. And and, and through most of the mid-90s to late-90s, I didn't have a DVD, DVD player at all. So that meant if I wanted my own copy of the series to watch over and over as much as I wanted, I had to go and get VHS. And there were two VHS sets released by BMG Video, which collected the first 12 episodes except for Halloween, that's episode 9, and also included episode 15, So-Called Angels, that's the Christmas episode. One was colored red, one was colored blue, and they were often referred to as, well, the red box set and the blue box set. (laughs) A third box set, the yellow box set, was scheduled for release in 1999, but BMG Video actually went under, and DVDs were gaining popularity anyway, so it actually never came to pass. Uh, There was a DVD box set in the very, very early 2000s, which came in a special, like, lunchbox edition. I think it was, from what I've been told, there might have been some features on it, and the lunchbox goes for a lot of money on eBay. But like I said, Shout Factory gave it an even more proper release in, in 27, which, uh, like I said, is, is worth the money. I actually did have one of the VHS box sets. I had the red box set. 
Um, <clears throat> there were trading cards in there that you could kind of link together. And I think in each of the little videos that you could link together and they would form like a big collage or a big picture of Angela too. Um, I sold those on eBay a while ago because basically what I did was I got the red box set. I wound up being able to tape most of the last four or five episodes from a marathon that I came across on MTV during the summer of 98. Uh, and then I tracked down one of the blue tapes on eBay in 2001 or so. I taped several episodes off the Fox family channel when they were rerunning the show in 2000. And of course, now it's like available for streaming, it's on DVD, and my quest for VHS copies back in the late 90s and early 2000s is completely irrelevant, but I'm sure my comic book and movie geek friends can appreciate it when I say that there was something about going on such a quest when things were not so readily available. I mean, I make do with whatever I could, even if the episodes were edited or if I had to fast forward through commercials. Plus, like I said, my search for the video, plus um, I ended up joining the, the so-called mailing list, this listserv of, of, of people who, many of whom I've become friends with over the years. And that was because of my search for the show on video. I went looking for episodes. I was looking for two of them, I believe. And, um, and I'll talk a little bit more about that next episode. But that is it. I mean, it's, it was a little long. It was rambling, but it was my so-called origin story. And what I'm going to do now is take another break, and when I get back, I'm going to take go character by character and then episode by episode through my so-called life. You are about to witness history in the making. Hi there, this is Todd from Forgotten Films, and if you spend all your time watching new releases, then you need to broaden your movie horizons. And a great way to do that is by joining me for the Forgotten Filmcast. We don't talk about the new releases. We don't even talk about the classics. We talk about the movies that time forgot. On each episode, I'm joined by another film blogger to discuss a film that may or may not be worth rediscovering. So look for the Forgotten Filmcast on iTunes, Podomatic, and wherever you find great podcasts. So like I said, our main character is Angela Chase, played by Claire Danes. Angela is a 15-year-old sophomore at a high school in Pittsburgh who has just started hanging out with Rayanne Graff, played by A.J. Langer. Rayanne is the, well, the wild girl, the girl from the wrong side of the tracks, the girl who drinks, has sex, and does things that Angela hasn't even approached doing. Tagging along with Rayanne and becoming an important part of Angela's life in the process is Ricky Vasquez, played by Wilson Cruz. Ricky is Rayanne's best friend and is gay. All the while, Angela is crushing on Jordan Catalano, played by Jared Leto, who seems like a kind of burnout, but let's just say if Rob Lowe had played John Bender in The Breakfast Club, you'd have Jordan Catalano. The new change in Angela's life upsets her former best friend, Sharon Chersky, played by Devin Odessa, who is an overachieving class president type of girl, the type you definitely find in a sorority in a few years. It's also puzzling to Angela's neighbor, Brian Krakow, played by Devin Gummersall, the nerdy valedictorian type who's completely awkward and obviously has had a crush on Angela for a long time. Finally, the others affected by this and who play a part in the show are the rest of Angela's family. Her father, Graham, played by Tom Irwin, her mother, Patty, played by Bess Armstrong, are both in their early 40s. And while Graham is more easygoing than Patty, who tends to be a control freak, both are struggling with their daughter's current change in identity or search for her identity. And then there's Danielle, played by Lisa Wilhoyt, who's Angela's 10-year-old sister whose life is so edited and who sometimes seems to serve no other purpose in Angela's life than to be annoying. 
If you want more of an in-depth look at each character, like I said, go to the characters pages on MSCL.com. There are descriptions and quotes by each of these characters. It gives you a great insight as to who each of them are. And also gives you a nice list and insight into all the supporting characters and even background characters of the show. And I know I'm talking up that site, but really, uh, it's been an amazing resource in putting together what I needed for this podcast. And I I give it props because, like I said, it's been around since at least the mid-90s, probably even since the show was on the air. And and, and it's always been one of my favorites. So for the episodes themselves, well, there are 19 of them. What I did to prep for this show was actually rewatch the entire series from beginning to end, something I hadn't really done since probably 2007 when I got the DVD set. I'd seen the pilot episode plenty of times because I'd used it in my advanced English class for the last few years. I've also used the substitute for a journalism class unit on the First Amendment in student press. Plus, I watch so-called angels at least once a year, or I try to watch it once a year around Christmas. But some of these episodes I was seeing for the first time in about seven years. What I'm going to do is give you a quick synopsis, talk about important developments as far as the overall show is concerned, such as introductions to new characters, important moments for characters, the start of new storylines, etc. And then I'm going to talk about my favorite moment or moments from each episode. And we're going to start with the first episode, which is called, well, it's the pilot. So we're introduced to her own narration to Angela Chase, who's 15 years old. It seems that Angela is going through an identity crisis. She has stopped hanging out with her best friend, Sharon. She seems to have an ongoing confrontation with her mother, Patty. Over the course of the episode, we see Angela, a girl not used to being around a hard-drinking, hard-partying girl like Rayanne, get into situations she can't exactly handle. It comes to a head the night where she, Rayanne, and Ricky head to a club named Let's Bolt. And the guy gets rough with Rayanne, implying that he's going to rape her. Angela then returns home and catches her father talking to another woman before she goes inside and ends up crying in her mother's arms. Important developments for this episode, obviously, is it establishes all of our main characters and kind of gets us going. We get the idea that Angela is unhappy and headstrong yet scared. Patty and Graham are in a marriage that seems to have its fair share of tensions, and Sharon is clearly upset by the way, at the way she feels that she's been ditched. There are a number of things here that are set up that'll pay off immediately and in the long term. And I know some of these synopses are going to seem short, but there's 19 of them, and I don't want to take up too much of the podcast um, getting into insane detail. I, I suppose I could have done a, like a 20-something episode show about my so-called life, and um, but, you know, there you go. Anyway, my favorite moment of this episode, and I've seen this episode so many times that it's hard to pick one, but upon this rewatch, it's the moment toward the end where Angela comes home and sees her father talking to another woman. Um, Everybody Hurts by R.E.M. plays on the soundtrack, and yes, uh, that puts us squarely in the 90s. But the way that Angela both figuratively and literally stumbles, and Brian um, kind of stumbles verbally trying to help her, it and it, like the, the look on Angela's face, and then kind of how you know that kind of prompts her to to be upset and go to her mom and, and give her mom a hug, and she's crying. And the whole sequence shows just how tough all of this is for for her, and how, how all of it will be. And if you look at Claire Dane's face, Angela is Angela's face. She's shattered in a big way at the end of this episode, more than how scared she was when she was at Let's Bolt and, and the guy started kind of come, like, really forcibly forcing himself onto Rianne and 
and and how she was a little frightened that she had to get driven home in a police car because that's what happened and it's a pilot episode that that's near perfect. It's well acted, well written, well directed. In fact, the only other pilot episode of the show that I've ever seen that comes that that is the equivalent or even slightly better than this is the pilot for Freaks and Geeks, a show that I definitely will cover in a podcast at some point down the line. Uh, but yeah, this this really gets us into the into it and um what's in here goes directly into the second episode and that's called Dancing in the Dark. Dancing in the Dark centers around, kind of in a big way, Patty. Because fearing her marriage is becoming boring, uh, Patty, acting on a suggestion from her best friend and Sharon's mom, Camille Chersky, signs her and Graham up for dance lessons. While the lessons are a complete disaster, Graham does end things uh, before anything can happen with the woman from the previous episode. Meanwhile, Rayanne tries to help Angela with her crush on Jordan by having him procure a fake ID for Angela and then bringing it to Brian Krakow's house on a night where Angela is there working, supposedly working on extra credit uh, for science class. We get, obviously, here, important developments here. We get, obviously, that Patty and Graham's marriage is complicated and Graham has a bit of a wandering eye, although he hasn't strayed yet. Uh, We also get more character development for Patty, we know she was popular in high school, and here we get the sense that she was more like Sharon, and Camille might have been a little more like Angela, that there's the idea that that the, the roles have switched with their daughters. Uh, plus, we get more of Jordan. We realize that while Angela definitely has a crush on him, she's not exactly going to lay down and let him go all the way the minute she meets him. In fact, he kind of... She gets into the car to get the ID, and, and he... He makes a move on her, but he makes a move on her like, I'm just going to get on you and shove my tongue down your throat type of move. And she turns to, she kind of pushes himself and says, I don't even open that wide as a dentist. Like, there's still that sense that <laughs> he's actually genuinely surprised that she, re- she kind of rebuffs his advances because she's like, you know, she, he, she likes him. But um, Angela still has that sense of, of, uh, romanticism, innocence, uh, what do you want to call it? But, you know, the idea that it it's not just sex. In fact, in the first episode, uh, Rayanne had asked, you want to have sex with him? And she said, well, sex or a conversation, ideally both. So the idea that that she would actually want to date him as opposed to, you know, going to the backseat of his car. And we also... Um, Brian, there's a little bit of Brian Krakow in here getting his uh, crush on on Angela. My favorite moment is actually Sharon Chersky uh, in this episode. Devin Odessa, played her, is like the queen of the reaction shot. First of all, um, throughout this series, she's just awesome with the the facial expressions. But here, she really shows how much pain Sharon is in over the fact that she and Angela are no longer friends because they've been best. They've been BFFs for, like, a really long time since they were, like, little kids. And, you know, one of the things I've loved about the show is that other shows would have set up Team Ray, uh, Team Rayanne versus Team Sharon in the fight for Angela's soul or whatever you want to call it, you know, friendship. MSCL doesn't do this. There is a sense of the beginning, but as you see over the course of the next 17 episodes or so, Things evolve. Things evolve in a very organic sort of fashion, but things really do evolve uh, to the point where Angela and Rayanne, there's some, there'll be some serious tension down the line, and 
Sharon and Rianne will actually become closer. And so, and again, that's why I always felt that this seemed really like the way high school tended to be. So, third episode is Guns and Gossip. While most of the main characters are in class, a gun goes off in the hallway of the high school. Brian is witness to hearing a gunshot and then seeing Ricky run away. We later find out that Ricky's cousin brought the gun into school to sell it, but Ricky wants people to think it's his, so maybe they'll stop harassing him. Brian is pressured to tell what he saw by the principal and the police, but then he stands up for himself. And meanwhile, a rumor spreads that Angela and Jordan had complete sex in his car. Important developments of issues that, believe it or not, um, this episode is the most Degrassi of episodes. Uh, it's, it inserts an issue into the show. It, it's handled through the dialogue of the parents more than the kids, really. And um, what's really important here is we we meet Amber Valone, who is Rayanne Graff's mom. She's played by Patty uh, Darbinville, uh, who was one of uh, Andy Warhol's factory uh, has a very a lot of underground cred from the 60s, 70s, and 80s. But beyond that, we also get uh, more of Angela's crush on Jordan, obviously, as well as Brian's crush on Angela. Uh, we also get to see Angela get close to Ricky because Ricky's being harassed for wearing eyeliner, for dressing up, for being, for for not looking like everybody else, and 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 being obviously, um, I say obviously gay, but but you know, dressing, dressing very effeminately and, and acting very effeminately. And, and he gets, you know, pushed around by the jocks because that's, and th- people still do that because guys are guys in, in high school can be total assholes. Trust me. I I've had to deal with it in my own classroom and, and I've called guys out for using the word fag or, or whatever, because no, but anyway, that, that's a big thing, you know, of, of Ricky's journey through this show of, of struggling with his identity and sexual identity and really realizing who he is. My favorite moment is actually there's two. There's a tie. At one point, uh, the first one is that Patty tries to talk to about sex with Angela, which is really awkward and embarrassing. And Claire Danes really does go like full Molly Ringwald in parts of the scene, and I absolutely love it. It is just like, um, like you can tell she's just like, please let this end. It is so so great and so funny and. And the scene, a more serious one, the second one, is the scene um, toward the end with Ricky. Angela sees Ricky in a car, and and, and she sits to him, and Ricky tells her how he can't make it through a full day of school, and and it's tender without being cheesy. Uh, It speaks to the show's authenticity. Um, It brings these two characters closer together as friends outside of him just kind of being Rayanne's friend. He's now becoming Angela's friend, and she's trying to understand him on a level that Rayanne might understand but doesn't really express that she does all the time because Rayanne's often wrapped up in her own bullshit anyway. But it gives you a moment between two characters that really does feel very genuine and hints that this is how this is going to connect with its audience down the road, um, even when it's using the most trope of tropes. Because, like I said, it the guns issue tends to be a little bit forced in, in parts of the episode. Um, and like I said, it is the most Degrassi of episodes. One that is not is the next one. Father figures. Patty and Graham discover that their printing business is being audited. Uh, they inherited the printing business from Patty's father who retired after he had a heart attack and they, they run it. They run it. 
What this does, though, is because the audit is from the year her father had the heart attack and was, you know, laid up in bed, and, and Patty did the taxes that year, and uh, it brings Patty into conflict with her father, Angela, on the other on the other side of things, who's still upset from catching Graham with another woman at the end of the pilot, gives him the cold shoulder, and then, well, he gives her and Rayanne dead tickets, and then Angela scalps them. Rand gets pissed at Angela. Angela's still mad at her father. Her father's mad at her. I mean, everybody is basically upset with one another in this show. But by the end of the episode, we see Angela starting to patch things up with Graham. And we really get an insight into why Patty is the way she is. She is there's, ang- there's anguish over never being able to please her father. And never being good enough. And you see... Possibly that she's inadvertently putting the same pressure on her daughter or daughters. Interestingly enough, uh, in a in a flashback in the episode, they flash back to Angela to Graham coming home when Angela was a little girl, and she's like, "Daddy's home!" And she runs up and gives him a hug. The the Angela, the younger Angela, is played by uh, Kelly Cuoco, uh, who is the the main uh, female lead on The Big Bang Theory, a show that I don't watch, but I just. Thought it was interesting seeing her name in the credits. I was like, oh, wow. There you go. Anyway, an important development of this issue, uh, this episode, this is the introduction of uh, Patty's father, who's played by Paul Dooley, who you will probably remember as Molly Ringwald's dad in 16 Candles. I believe he was also at the time, and he might still be the husband of Winnie Holzman, who played, who created the show. Uh, but but he's, he's very gruff and curmudgeonly old, you know, kind of a curmudgeonly old man type, uh, always wearing a fishing hat, like, you know, that, that type of guy. And, um, the English teacher quits, Miss Mayhew quits in this episode. So we have the beginning of basically what's kind of a running gag for a few episodes where this sort of rotating cast of substitute English teachers. Kind of like almost like on a Murphy Brown's secretary sort of level. I like Rayanne in this episode. Uh, this, there's a scene where she cooks with Graham. He's shown her how to make fritters, and it shows how much she misses actually having a dad. I mean, you get you you're implied that um, that that dad split a long time. It's implied that dad split a long time ago, and she really hasn't had. She's got Rayanne's mother's got a boyfriend named Rusty. But you get the sense that that he and Rianne don't necessarily get along, and he's kind of a he's kind of a dick. Rianne and Graham connect on that level, well, especially because of the dead, because you know he he gets he gets that's when he, when she's cooking these fritters in the in the um, in the kitchen, because uh, Graham loves to cook, and that, that'll be a big part of his story throughout this entire show. He gets the call from his brother saying, I've got these dead tickets on him. And, and she's like, you like the dead? And they just start, it's like instant connection. Like when you like when you find out somebody likes the same thing you do or the same team you do or the same, you know, whatever. Um, it's that instant connection. You start talking shop, so to speak. And and it's just, and like I said, she's so, she becomes enamored of Graham and, and to a certain extent. She just, to the point where at the end, where Angela's just bitching. This is Angela at one of her most selfish episodes, to be honest with you. And Rand just basically gives her speech like, be lucky you have a dad. And it's a, it's a scene with Rand and Angela toward the end of the episode in the bathroom uh, at the school where, where she's like, you know, you, you really, really should be lucky where you have a dad. That 
skirts the line of melodrama. It gives Langer, AJ Langer gives it just enough subtlety for it not to be overly dramatic, you know. And I think it's also telling. It's my favorite moment in an episode that it actually is more parent focused than it is than it is teenager focused, which the show stayed consistent with. By the way, it never lost its focus on Patty and Graham which I've always given it credit for because other shows would have. Other shows did. Uh, the Walshes on 90210, as that show got more and more popular, and as Brandon and Brenda got become became more and more the focus of the show, Jim and Cindy went from having actual things to do to being plot devices to coming in and out of rooms and being in the kitchen. And here you have actual plot you have development you have things they're not the parents aren't just one note characters and it's something i've come to appreciate over the years the next episode is the zit angela gets a zit around the same time that patty asks her to be in this charity mother-daughter fashion show Uh, charity is the women's shelter so Angela spends the entire episode feeling incredibly insecure and self-conscious and ugly. Meanwhile, the sophomore boys rate Sharon's breasts the best around. They say that Rayanne has the most slut potential. And, well, Sharon feels... Rayanne celebrates this. Sharon, though, feels self-conscious as well, wondering if her new boyfriend, Kyle, only likes her for her well, assets. By the end of the episode, Kyle confesses that he likes Sharon for things other than her body, and Danielle instead of Angela, winds up walking with Patty in the fashion show. Important developments here is that if you set aside the fact that the beauty and body image storyline, along with the metaphor of Kafka's metamorphosis, which is which is in the episode uh, by, by way of the latest English teacher, is a little forced, um, there is a fair amount of character and relationship development in the issue. Kyle and Sharon get together for the first time, and they would be on again, off again throughout the entire series. Angela and Sharon actually talk to one another. That's important. And R- Brian and Ricky seem to start getting along. They'll actually become pretty good friends by the end of the, ep- the show as well. And Danielle, well, Danielle finally gets a chance to be something other than annoying. <laughs> and the show, the ending of the show is a little bit saccharine with its bad fashion, but the acting saves it and it still has some great moments. And, uh, this is one of the times where the, the end credits actually have something, something over it, uh, which is a design, a montage of, of Ricky, Rayanne and Angela fooling around with, fabric and stuff because Patty had been designing a dress or making a dress. A little bit of a montage there. Uh, my favorite moment is Angela and Sharon. Uh, Angela and Sharon have two confrontations in the girls' bathroom. Uh, the first is typical of what we come to expect from them, fighting with each other, sniping with each other. They've been doing that since the beginning of the first episode. The, the, first episode. the second, though, actually has them letting their guard down and getting along for a few moments. Until Rayanne interrupts them and kind of kills that. But it's great because the conversation is natural when they're getting along. And you get the feeling that as much as they have a lot of tension between them, the heat is kind of forced. Like they're they're acting bitchy toward one another because that's what they're supposed to be doing or something like that. You know, they're, they're putting that on for for at least the the time being 
and then they let their guard down you see the natural friendship between these two characters and and it, it it's a nice little hint as to things how things will thaw uh will thaw there it won't be as uh as cold as as it has been for the last couple of episodes the substitute is the sixth episode of the next one playing off a classic teacher movie trope Angela gets a substitute teacher in English who is unconventional and British because he's played by Roger Reese, who was Robin Colcord in the last few seasons of Cheers. His character, Vic Racine, bucks the system and challenges the class to wake up. They write poems, and one of them is very racy. I'm not going to read this. Just read. Look, I really... Read it! called haiku for him he peels off my clothes like a starving man would peel an orange (laughs) his lips taste my juicy (laughs) I refuse to read this His lips taste my juicy sweetness. My legs tangle with his. We become one being, a burning furnace in the cold cement basement of love. Hormones. What will we do without them? <laughs> Comments, questions. Uh, who uh, who wrote that? <laughs> the poem causes controversy when it's printed in the literary magazine, The Lit. When Principal Foster confiscates the magazine, Angela wants to fight it, despite Patty and Graham's hesitation. Vic quits the teaching job because it's discovered that he's wanted in New Hampshire for failure to play child support. Angela goes to see him at his apartment. Even though her image of him is totally blown, she still stands up with what she believes in, makes photocopies of, of the lit and distributes them and gets in trouble, but gets off with a slap on the wrist. Because according to Principal Foster, Mr. Racine put weird ideas in your head. Important uh, developments here is two major things happen here. First, uh, Vickery scene figures out that Jordan, despite being bright, can't read. Uh, this gets up a, this sets up a huge storyline for him down the road. Plus, we have a moment where Sharon and Rayanne have a conversation that it doesn't involve scowling at one another. It turns out that Sharon wrote the poem that everybody's all upset about, but everybody else thinks that Rayanne did it, and Rayanne wants them to think she wrote it so they secretly agree to keep it between themselves that they know the truth about the poem my favorite moment is personally i like the moment where angela at the end of the episode toward the end of the episode goes to confront victory scene about his being a deadbeat dad he spouts off about being in a prison and getting out and she should drop out of school and she kind of shakes her head at that and then he says then he calls her amanda and she just gets disgusted. It doesn't shake her resolve, but because she still does what she feels is right. But it seems it turns the hero substitute teacher trope on its head, and that's what I like about it. Because I've seen way too many 
crappy movies and TV show episodes where it's like, you know, he comes in and he changes these people's lives. Where it's like, you know, whatever. The characters, too, are developing well. And while the plots remain self-contained, in that the main plot is done by the end of the episode, we're still getting a sense that that subplot, B-plot, C-plots, and, and, and character arcs are continuing. The characters are developing more. Some of them are becoming more mature. Some of them, the relationships are changing. And... You know, despite the fact that it's like it seems to be, it's like okay, here's an episode, here's an episode, here's an episode that you can follow the plot. Nobody's the same way they were in the pilot. Following up on this episode is the next one: Why Jordan can't read. While on a field trip, Angela gives Rayanne a letter she wrote um, that's supposedly addressed to Jordan. Everything she ever thought and felt about Jordan Catalano is in that letter. Jordan hasn't seen it, and she's not gonna, she's not necessarily going to give it to Jordan. But Jordan finds the letter and gives it back. Angela is mortified, and when Jordan says he read parts of it, because Angela's not stupid, Angela kind of puts two and two together and realizes that Jordan couldn't read it. This connects enough that he asks her to see his band practice. After that, he gives her a ride home, and he kisses her goodnight. And she wants to go out with him, and Angela tells him, well, to come over and meet her parents. When he stands her up, it's devastating. Jordan later hints to Ricky that he likes her, but he's not sure how to handle this. Meanwhile, Patty thinks she's pregnant, and Danielle crushes on Brian. Patty's not pregnant, by the way. And Danielle's kind of over Brian by the end of the episode. Excuse me, not completely, but for the most part. Obviously, the biggest important development in this episode is that there's more development in the Angela-Jordan relationship. In fact, he kisses her. And uh, that's what this episode is designed to do. Uh, we also get hints of Graham being unhappy and uh, a little more of Sharon and Kyle and a little more of Sharon and Rayanne. And one of the moments, my favorite moment, is that uh, what I love is that when he kisses her, and he, it's a real kiss this time. It's not, I'm going to grab you and shove my tongue down your throat. It's an actual kiss. It's in the middle of the episode. So the next night we get him standing Angela up for this date they were going to go on or meeting her parents or whatever. And I like it because, not because I like to see her suffer, but because we get, like, first of all, I've been there. <laughs> I've been stood up. I remember being stood up or being canceled on for the umpteenth time. And and I think that Claire Danes owns this episode and that she and Devin Gummersall as Brian have this this great chemistry, and there's a real tension between the two of them that's almost romantic in a way, but but, but she doesn't realize. And the kiss moment is so sweet, and, and but but it's not at the end; in the middle. So we get the kind of aftermath of it, and you know, and, and that's one of the things the show always brought to me as an audience member that it never ended with the kiss. We got to see what happened afterwards. We would have gotten to see Monday morning for the Breakfast Club, or we would have seen whether or not Andy and Blaine would have made it at the end of Pretty in Pink, and that's that's the big deal for me. Strangers in the House is the next episode. Sharon's dad has a heart attack. She stays with the chases, and things are very tense. She seems to attach herself to Brian when Kyle isn't around, and meanwhile, Graham has a crisis of conscience over the heart attack and the account that he's supposed to land for the print shop. Angela... Angela and Sharon make up by the end of the episode. Graham does land that account, but Patty fires him for his own good. And, well, because she loves him. Because he's clearly unhappy with his job. Important developments, well, we have Graham being fired, or at least Patty letting him go as far as the print shop is concerned. 
And that will pilot his storyline until the end of the series. Sharon and Angela's reconciliation is important because although they aren't besties right now, it clears the air. Ricky effectively ends the Ray and Sharon Angela jealousy triangle uh, as as well. One little note is I actually ended up type, taping this episode off of Fox Family, and they cut a scene where Patty and Graham make out in the hospital room. I don't know if it was cut for content so much it was cut for um, to fit more ads because cable tended to do that, especially if they're running old shows. They'll cut them down in syndication because they need to fit more commercials in. So I'm not sure why the cut was made. Anyway, my favorite moment comes toward the end of the episode. Angela goes to see Sharon and they reconcile and then she sees Brian on her way home. And it's well written and it's well acted and you get the sense that these three characters have known each other for years. And right now there's a lot of tension between them and there's tension between Angela and Brian, yet there's a natural connection and chemistry and it's well acted and everything is well written. This whole episode is well written, including the adult actors because it is an adult focused episode in a big way you know Graham is really really stressing over the fact that a friend of his who's his age is laid up in the hospital with a heart attack and and you know you're facing your own mortality and and you know, like all these different things and and it's a very very well written episode without being maudlin without being too melodramatic and um you know and and very well done Halloween is next. It's Halloween. Rayanne, Angela, and Ricky and Brian sneak into the school after hours in an effort to play a prank that involves an urban legend about Nikki Driscoll, a boy who was killed in the gym in 1963. Patty and Graham rent the pirate in Rapunzel costume in order to go to Camille's party, but wind up having sex instead. Sharon foregoes a night with Kyle to go trick-or-treating with Danielle, who's dressed as Angela. Rayanne and Brian get stuck in the boiler room, and Angela seems to encounter the ghost of Nikki Driscoll, a boy who reminds her of Jordan, who's about to get kicked out of school, but he eventually decides to actually show up for class to avoid getting kicked out. Uh, Two major important developments here are character developments on the part of Ricky, who we see is still struggling with her sexuality and not fitting in. He goes as Brian for Halloween. And Jordan... Uh, who is destined to be Nikki Driscoll if he doesn't watch it. And, of course, he returns to school at the end. My favorite moment, um, this is actually my least favorite episode of the show, because even though it's well-written and well-acted, and, you know, there's no bad episode of the show, but there are ones that you, you favor more than others. It's a nice, light-hearted episode as well, but I just don't like Halloween too much in general. I find it cheesy. The episode I, is a little bit cheesy at points. But Danielle goes as Angela for Halloween, and... Lisa Lilhoyt's imitation of Claire Danes as Angela is awesome. And it's very cute that Sharon takes her out trick-or-treating because Sharon's just like kind of like, I don't want to go to all these parties and and stuff, and she kind of wants to be a kid for a night. And it's it's probably the best part of the episode for me, is that. The next episode is Other People's Mothers. Ryan throws a birthday party on the same night as Patty and Graham are throwing a party for Patty's parents' 45th wedding anniversary. Patty and Graham handle the stress of dealing with Patty's overbearing mother, who undermines her at every turn, especially when Angela would prefer to go to Rayanne's. At Rayanne's, the party gets way out of control. Rayanne winds up overdosing. Angela calls Patty, who calls an ambulance, and Rayanne goes to the hospital and gets her stomach pumped. Important developments include a lot of the Rayanne and Angela friendship coming to a head. It all goes back to the episode, uh, the first episode, where Ray- Rayanne, uh, if you watch in the background when um, Angela's dyeing her hair red, 
rifling, Rayanne's rifling through the Chase's medicine cabinet. And so it's not that Rayanne drinks, it's that Rayanne has a drinking and substance abuse problem. And Ricky's constant resolve seems to crack because he's always protecting Rayanne. And we get important character development from Patty in that her mother, uh, her mother is overbearing, but she also had a Rayanne in her past, and that's why she's so overprotective of Angela. And my favorite moment, this is in one of my, this episode's one of my top five, and it's so hard to pick a favorite moment because it's just, it's that cool. cool. Yes, it is the most after school special of episodes, but Danes, Langer, Wilson, Armstrong, all the actors who were in the main scenes when Rayanne has to be taken to the hospital, they act so well that they avoid horrible melodrama and pat lesson learning. I would say that the 15 minutes starting with Patty and Angela's argument at the house before she heads to Rayanne's party, and then when Patty re-enters the party at the end. So there's basically the entire scene of Angela showing up at the party, the party being out of control, Rayanne's mother coming home, kicking everybody out, yelling at her daughter about how she's too drunk, she needs to do things in moderation, and she goes out on her date with her boyfriend, and then Rayanne just taking that turn for the worst, and Angela calling Patty, and Patty getting her in the ambulance. It's It's excellent. Patty, Bess Armstrong, breaks down at the end of the scene from sheer exhaustion and relief that her daughter is safe. But it's just, it, it's it's so odd, it's so well done. It's very, very tense without being overdone. And and this sort of sort of senior chewing scene, the tension, you really, really feel for the people involved. And again, one of those moments that makes the show so great. Life of Brian is next. In an episode narrated by Brian Krakow, there's a dance taking place at the school. Sharon's stressing out over it, and Brian discovers that a new girl, Delia Fisher, who's played by Senta Moses, whom you'd recognize her if you saw her, but I recognized from a very short-lived Saturday morning NBC sitcom called Running the Halls, uh, likes him. Conflicted between his emotions for Angela and liking Delia, he asks Delia to the dance, but when Angela just basically asks him for a ride, he misinterprets that as her asking him for the dance because if if there's anything Angela can't do is just ask a direct question. Well, Brian breaks his date with Delia to go with Angela. It breaks Delia's heart, and she ends up hanging out and dancing with Ricky. Meanwhile, Graham wallpapers the bedroom and comes to the conclusion that he wants to pursue a dream of, of going to culinary school or, or doing something with cooking. Important developments, obviously, we get a ton of layering and depth to Brian Krakow's character because he's narrating the episode. And Devin Gummersall really plays the role of the socially inept, awkward dork very, very well. It's genuinely heartbreaking when he dumps Delia and you wind up yelling, You idiot! There's also the start of an important Graham subplot. Patty enrolls him in a cooking class by the end of the episode, and this will lead to a number of things. It's Patty's being overbearing and Graham not wanting to be pushed as well. Ricky also has a crush on another guy, which brings his character further along. My favorite moment is the dance, all of the dance. It's a silly high school dance that looks like a silly high school dance that I've had to attend or chaperone. Ricky at the dance first realizing that Corey, the guy he likes, Probably doesn't feel the same way that he does. And then Ricky dances with Delia. Ricky Vasquez, by the way, is noted for being a gay character on a television show at a time when you didn't have very many gay characters. Uh, Wilson Cruz gets Ricky's insecurities and nervousness across incredibly well, just as well as Devin Gummersall sells Brian Krakow. Plus, there's Hathaway. Self-esteem is our next episode. This is one of the this is one of the more notable ones, one of the bigger ones, because uh, Angela and Jordan are kind of going out now. 
They're making out on a regular basis, and the school then they're doing it in the school boiler room. <laughs> Jordan doesn't want anything to be public, though. While a- obviously Angela wants to be his girlfriend, girlfriend, um, she's also doing horribly in geometry. By the way, Graham begins taking cooking classes and befriends the ever obnoxious Howley Lowenthal, and the gang finally gets an English teacher who takes an. Uh, who's permanent, Mr. Katimsky, and he takes an interest in Ricky and encourages him to join the drama club, something that'll come, become important down the line as well. When Angela, Sharon, and Rayanne uh, go to Pike Street a Club to see Buffalo Tom, Angela gets to hang out, goes to hang out with Jordan, but he blows her off. As Angela leaves and Sharon goes to comfort her, Rayanne calls Jordan out on his shit and tells him she knows he likes her and he knows he likes her. And Graham winds up teaching cooking classes because the cooking teacher goes has to go to rehab, and everybody seems to listen to Graham when he's talking about risotto or something. At the end, Angela returns to the boiler room, but she stands up for herself, and Graham's teaching the class by the end of the episode. Ricky is signed up for drama, and in the very final scene, which uh, gets cited quite a bit when we're talking about this show, Jordan walks up to Angela in the hallway and holds her hand. Important developments in this episode. Uh, this is the final setup for the last set of story arcs. Angela and Jordan's relationship actually begins here for real. Graham sets off in a cooking class. Hallie will become an important character in his storyline, by the way. Both Graham and Patty, they do seem to be bickering a lot, and it shows more cracks in their relationship. Katimsky, Mr. Katimsky, by the way, the English teacher, will also be an important character down the road. And my favorite moment, I've got to go with the end. Jordan holding Angela's hand in the hallway. It's well written, well shot, well composed. It's a John Hughes scene in a way. And everyone sees it. I mean, every single teenage character in the show is in that hallway at that time. And as much as it's Jordan holding Angela's hand that's important, it's everyone's reaction to seeing that that makes the scene. And that's why I like the scene. Plus the Buffalo Tom song they play is pretty awesome. But is all well that ends well in self-esteem? Not entirely. The next episode is Pressure. Jordan and Angela are still hot and heavy, and he's pressuring her to have sex. Takes her to an abandoned house on a Friday night where everybody's partying and using the bathrooms to have the bedrooms to have sex. But nothing happens because she's got cold feet and she uses Rayanne's shaky sobriety as an excuse. Hallie tells Graham that she wants to open a restaurant. She wants Graham to be the head chef. Angela gets sex advice from Sharon. Graham and Patty have an argument about the restaurant. Angela goes to see Jordan, who is mad at her for lying to him and using Rayanne's, you know, possibly being drunk as an excuse to back out of having sex. They have a fight about sex, and she leaves upset when he says that, well, not having sex with somebody is abnormal because you have sex. That's what you do. And in the end, they sort of break up because she doesn't want to give it up. Important developments are the restaurant idea, as well as Jordan and Angela's relationship becoming more complex, uh, more or less breaking up as well. Plus, Brian and Ricky continue to become better friends. My favorite moment, Angela and Jordan have a conversation at the end of the episode, which takes place while Graham is supposedly napping on the couch. Uh, Angela stands up for herself there. And this is where they more or less break up. It's not overdone. Because many times these are like room-filling fights. You know, overblown scenes and, and, and yelling and shouting and people walking around the room and making a big scene out of it. Think San Elmo's Fire, where Ali Sheedy and Judd Nelson break up. But this this is quiet enough. 
Graham never makes his presence known because he's supposedly napping on the couch and Angela doesn't see him. And and Danes and, and Leto just just give it enough kind of level it off enough that that it that it seems very real. On the wagon is our next episode. It centers around Rayanne, who's still sh- struggling with her her sobriety, and also with the fact that Angela, who broke up with Jordan still spends all of her time with him because they're friends so Angela's not really talking to Rianne very much high school relationships were complicated anyway Rianne manages to get the lead singer gig with Jordan's band um, and completely freezes at an open mic night when she's supposed to sing I Want to Be Sedated by the Ramones Patty worries about Rayanne's sobriety and then openly questions it to Amber who gets angry at the accusations that Rayanne could be drinking or that Amber would be a terrible mother Patty gives Rayanne a ride to school and Rayanne thanks her for well her life things seem to be a little better at the end but Rayanne while waiting in line grabs for a movie or, or something grabs a beer that a guy is holding and takes a drink Important developments here, well, Rayanne falls off the wagon at the end, and at the same time, there's just a deepening of relationships between the core characters. Um, my favorite moment is actually Rayanne's bombing at the club. Uh, it's incredibly uncomfortable, and it's made more uncomfortable by Wilson Cruz's Ricky's reactions. Uh, the same thing with the next day when... when he sees her in the hallway because she like she just took off and disappeared all night. And he tried to call her, and she couldn't get in touch with her. And he just lays into her, screaming like, "I thought that you were dead. I was picking out what to wear at your funeral." And it's, it's it, Wilson Cruz really deserves all the credit he gets for creating that Ricky Vasquez character. It's it's just so so done and and he is the center of the next episode which is which is another one of my favorites called So-called Angels. Cuz Ricky Ricky shows up to school with a, with a black eye a few days before Christmas break and he's got nowhere to go. This concerns Angela. Uh, while trying to figure out what to do, she comes across a homeless girl who's played by special guest star Juliana Hatfield. Angela wants to have this homeless girl and Ricky over for Christmas Eve, and Patty objects, and Angela gets into a fight with it. Angela leaves the house because she's going to go looking for Ricky and the girl. Patty pursues her and eventually comes across the girl, uh, realizing that she's talking to a ghost. At the end, the chases take Ricky in, and meanwhile, Sharon and Rayanne bond. While working at a teen helpline, and Brian feels lonely, so he calls the teen helpline for help and talks to Rayanne, who pretends to be a sex phone operator, and gets him all hot and bothered. It's a comedic subplot, which is actually kind of kind of funny. Anyway, the important development here is Ricky's whole storyline. Uh, we will see that this in later episodes, uh, which is something that actually because his his family basically kicked him out more or less. Um, you get the sense that he's he's obviously abused and can't go home later on you you basically find out that they moved without telling him so he really has nowhere to go they ditched him and that'll come up in later episodes and and um that which which is what takes this show beyond very special episode territory uh the next episode actually follows up on it and it's followed up through most of the rest of the show of of you know of of ricky it's not like he's the 
the one-off character who and every and the next episode everything goes back to you know Angela Jordan and stuff like that. My favorite moment is actually the the fight between Angela and Patty, a, a fight that Patty describes as where the fight is having you, and I love that description of a fight between two people because it's it's so an argument between two people because it's so so good and such a vivid basic description of something like that and Wilson Cruz this entire episode it's just it is a it's a gut-wrenching episode and it, and it is I watch it every Christmas because it's just it is it is that good and it's it's a, a very heartwarming episode at the same time um not saccharine Resolution, which centers around New Year's, is our next episode. Everyone makes a New Year's resolution. Angela vows to stop doing Jordan Catalano's homework. Rayanne vows to stop drinking for real this time. Ricky vows to find a place where he belongs. Sharon vows to stop sleeping with Kyle. Brian vows to stop obsessing over Angela. Patty vows to stop being judgmental. And Graham vows to not go through with the restaurant with Hallie Lowenthal. Danielle vows to... Convince her mom to let her wear makeup. Kontinsky vows to give up coffee. Not surprising, all these resolutions are eventually broken, well, except for Danielle's because she just continues to badger Patty. Over the course of the episode, Graham eventually caves on the restaurant. Jordan gets help reading via a tutor who will happen to be Brian Krakow. Sharon confesses to Rayanne that she's using Kyle for the sex. The main plot, though, centers around Ricky trying to find a place to live. As I just mentioned, his aunt and uncle moved without telling him. And he leaves the chases thinking that he's sponging off of them, so to speak. Uh, but by the end, you know, he's he gets on the wait list for a, for a group home, ends up in a homeless shelter. He leaves the shelter and eventually finds Mr. Katimsky's house and shows up at Katimsky's door and will start staying with him. We also get the revelation that Katimsky himself is gay. Important developments here are that we move forward on the restaurant, we move forward on the potential romance between Hallie and Graham, especially when she ends up breaking up with her fiancé, Brad. But Ricky, Ricky once again is the focus, a big focus of the episode, and he'll stay with Katimsky, who, like I said, we found out that that uh, Katimsky is gay, and uh, Jordan will get help with his with his illiteracy. My favorite moment is the interaction through the episode between Ricky and Mr. Katimsky. I think it, I love how it follows up on the previous episode and how previous interactions between them and other episodes. And I love how we'll continue to follow up on this. Uh, again, I can't give enough credit to Wilson Cruz for the way he played the character. It was very, very uh, well done. Betrayal is episode 17. And so that means we have three episodes left here. After having a steamy dream about another guy, Angela declares herself over Jordan and proceeds to dance around her room in the morning to blister in the sun by Violent Femmes, which is always a good song to dance around to. So she's got decent taste in music. Rayanne auditions for the school production of Our Town and gets the lead role of Emily, but more importantly, while hanging out at a pool hall one night, Rayanne runs into Jordan and the two get drunk. They have sex in the back of Jordan's car. Brian, who happens to be there taping some end-of-the-year video for the yearbook, inadvertently videotapes the beginning of it. Brian tells Sharon, who tells Delia, tell, and then Sharon tells Angela... Brian also tells Ricky. Ricky confirms this when Angela thinks Sharon's actually lying because she's like, I can't believe this. I thought we were past this. 
Uh, meanwhile, Graham and Hallie's restaurant moves forward, and so does the obvious romantic tension between them. By the end of the episode, Angela and Rayanne have a confrontation about it, um, even though the two of them don't reconcile. Important developments, though. Obviously, Rayanne and Jordan sleeping together destroys her friendship with Angela and strains her relationship with Ricky and the restaurant subplot moving along is another one. My favorite moment, though, is that after the betrayal has happened, Rayanne goes to the Chase house to talk to Angela. And Angela's not there. She's she's off helping with the play. But Patty is home. And Rayanne and Patty have a talk where Rayanne expresses how unbelievably guilty she feels. And it's followed up the next day by Rayanne excited to get the part of Emily, but nobody having but having nobody to talk to and nobody to, to congratulate her. And A.J. Langer looks so beaten up over all this and spends the entire second half of the episode just so... With this look of worry on her face and guilt that you actually feel bad for Rayanne, who's the one who f- screwed somebody else. So there, there's more sides to this than simply of like, you know, a cheating, cheating going on. In fact, at one point, Ricky explains it in a great context and says, Rayanne's always wanted to be you in a way, so maybe this was her weird way of doing that. And it doesn't make total sense, yet it does at the same time. Our next episode is Weekend. In an episode narrated by Danielle, Patty and Graham spend the weekend away at a like a winter resort. I guess it's a ski resort, although they didn't do any skiing. They're, they're with Graham's brother, Neil, and they thought they were going with Marla, but they end up going with this new girl that he's seeing, Cheryl Fleck, who's played by Laura Innes, who would be on ER for a number of years. While they're away, Rayanne shows up at Angela's and accidentally handcuffs herself to Patty and Graham's bed using a pair of handcuffs that Camille had given to Patty, being all like, spice up your marriage. And at the hotel, Neil's new girlfriend, is Cheryl, is incredibly irritating. Patty ends up getting drunk and making a fool of herself at dinner where this, to the point where the next morning Graham looks at her and goes, you know, we've been asked to leave. And on the way back, she tells Graham basically how frustrated she is at her ability to connect with him and how she's actually jealous over Hallie. In the end, all the kids work together to solve the handcuff problem before Patty and Graham get here. And when I say all the kids, I mean Angela, Ricky, Rayanne, Danielle, Brian, and Sharon. Then Graham accidentally handcuffs Patty to the bed in one final joke. Important developments. Uh, This is the most farcical saved by the bell of my so-called life episodes. It is also probably generally everyone's least favorite. I actually happen to like it. It's silly. There's not much to it. Yeah, Rayanne and Angela warm up a little bit more to each other. Uh, there's development of Patty's jealousy over Hallie, and that's about it. But I don't know. I just betrayal's so heavy. The next one is so heavy. So something, something a little silly to lighten the mood, and and is is fun. Even though people who have analyzed this talk about how everybody kind of acts out of character in a sense, but they don't. I don't. Know. I, I'm not going to get into the intricacies of the episode weekend. Um, just to say, I, I think I like it a little bit more than some other people do. Although I, I, I'm not the biggest fan of the adult storyline. I think it's the, the kid's storyline, especially since it's... And, and my favorite thing about it, my favorite moment, is just is Danielle and her voiceover. And I think that's what makes it work. Um, Lisa Wilhoyt has been playing the bratty, annoying sister very well. And I wonder what they would have done 
to develop her more if the show had been on for more than one year because she would have started to be a teenager herself so as she matures like how does this girl just like do we get like kind of a Sally Draper sort of story arc or something like that you know and and she's got this great scene with Rayanne where um, she hangs out with her at night Rayanne tries to get her to get her some booze and she's like nope it's wrong the drink and it's it's a cute scene and and you really get the feeling that Danielle has been is in awe of her sister and her sister's friends, and I think that she gets this across really, really well. And it's like I said, it's, it's a cute episode. But then there is the final episode of the show. In dreams begin responsibilities, and in the series final episode, Graham cooks for the restaurant investors because they get cold feet, and he just basically, well, I'm going to put my money on the table, so to speak, and and I'm going to cook. Uh, and they decide to invest in the restaurant. He and Hallie almost kiss. Meanwhile, Patty calls up an old boyfriend for advice on opening a restaurant. The old boyfriend cancels, but instead, Patty winds up talking to Jordan, who had showed up unexpectedly, probably to talk to Angela. And Patty seems to accept his apology for what happened. Delia Fisher confesses to Ricky that she has a crush on him. And Ricky, because Ricky tries to ask him out, and she says, well, you're gay. And he's like, yep. Yeah, Yes. And in the main story, Brian plays Cyrano de Bergerac for Jordan, writing a letter of apology to to Angela, essentially a love letter, exposing all of his feelings, but through Jordan. At the end of the episode, Angela discovers that Brian wrote the letter, and they're obviously his feelings. She confronts Brian, but they're interrupted by Jordan. She then gets in Jordan's car and leaves with him. Important developments in the very final episode here is that Ricky officially comes out. Um, he even says he's never admitted, he's never said that out loud. Uh, the romantic tension between Hallie and Graham increases. It's possible that they, this may lead to an affair. Sharon tells Rayanne that they're friends. And of course, Brian's true feelings for Angela are revealed, but Angela apparently gets back together with Jordan anyway. My favorite moment is the very last scene. Uh, Brian? Brian, look at me. Um, that letter I told you about, um... Ricky said you wrote it. And I have to know, because... Know what? There's nothing to know. Okay, what Ricky probably meant is that, see, Jordan Catalano asked me to, like, proofread it for grammatical errors. You proofread a love letter? Is this, like, a game to you? Um, hardly. But you admit that you were involved. I'm not admitting anything. This is a joke, right? The, th- the two of... Oh, God. I can't believe I fell for it. It's obviously a total lie. No, I meant every word. I mean, the person who wrote it meant every word. Probably. Brian? I didn't write it. Brian, you said... Forget what I said. Forget this whole conversation. liked it though, right? 
made you like happy? That's probably all that, you know, matters. To who? To, you know, the person who wrote it. Angela? said it's okay. See you, Brian. See ya. This was, as I said at the beginning of the episode, a gut punch. It should be no surprise to anybody that I always identify with with Brian Krakow when I was when I was a younger as a fan of the show. I was the dorky guy. I had I was very awkward. I actually did have a crush on my next door neighbor at the time. Um, and this is the moment where I knew I was invested beyond just liking the show. I mean, granted, it was the end, and <laughs> I came a little too late. But there's the one moment you keep coming back to, the one episode you keep coming back to of any show that said, like, this is where you locked in, and this is where I invested, and this is why the show's going to resonate me with me, and this is why it resonates with me 20 years after the fact. And it was that moment because it was just, it was painful in a sense that he told her he liked her basically, and she does give him this sort of, there's this sort of moment. Where like I'm sitting in the screen, like she's looking at him, like there. It looks like she's about to kiss Brian in one moment, like like he could move in and kiss her if he wanted to. But Brian's just such a putz when it comes to girls that he doesn't do it. And you're sitting in the back of your mind, and I'm going like, would you kiss her? God damn it! But um, and then when she she gives him this look when he gets in the car, um, she gets in the car with Jordan and is like, you know, well, you know how it is, and it's like, oh man. And we end with that. I mean, that's the end of the show. It's a cliffhanger in a sense, but it's not. It's just, it's just, it would go on beyond us watching it. And I think that's the sense you get. And, uh, and, uh, yeah. (laughs) So that's it, really. There is a little more, though. There's a soundtrack um, to my so-called life. Even though quite a bit of the music you hear in the course of the show actually wasn't on the show. Um, the album itself is a mix of various rock groups from the 90s. Uh, there's Sonic Youth, Juliana Hatfield, The Lemonheads, The Afghan Wigs, Archers of Loaf, Buffalo Tom. 
uh, the show's theme song, which is the last track. Uh, the, the album's out of print. You can probably, uh, it at one point, I think, was available through iTunes, but is not anymore. But you can probably get the CD at a decent price on eBay if you're if you're looking for it. Or, you never know, you might walk into a Best Buy or, or a record store that actually exists and, and find it. Uh, for, for a decent price. So, you know, if you're interested, go hunt it down. MSCL.com has a great list of all the songs played, when they were played, what episode they were played in. So if you wanted to wanted to, to track more of the music down, I've always been lukewarm to the official soundtrack, to be honest with you, mainly because there's a lot of stuff I remember from the show that didn't make it onto the CD. I mean, of course, there's all sorts of rights issues and how expensive we produce with the with, the, with some of the stuff that they use before you know uh, bands could actually contribute songs. And much of what I like about the show's music was already available anyway. Like auto, "Everybody Hurts" was on um, automatic for the people. Um, at one point, they played TLC's "What About Your Friends." I mean, so the, there's a little bit. Uh, you know, Hadaway's What Is Love, which is played in the dance scene, and then what we'd all get to know from the Roxbury guys on SNL. But, you know, so I don't, I didn't need to wait for a soundtrack to get that stuff. I could, in fact, I had, could get automatic for the people at the local library and just tape from the CD. But anyway, I would have liked a few more, a few less tracks of kind of like wannabe grunge soundtrack and more tracks of the score. Uh, W.G. Snuffy Walden did the score. Um, his music really provides the atmosphere for most of the episodes, and I would have loved to hear some of the pieces he played stand on their own. As it stands, there's the I've got the opening theme, I've got the closing theme, and uh, from basically taped off the television. And uh, there is one piece available on an album of his from a number of years later called Angela Smiles, which is a slightly longer, more updated music version of some of the background music. I can't remember where I bought the soundtrack. I, I, I remember seeing it in like a Virgin Megastore or something in like 98 or so. And I was actually surprised that my so-called life had a soundtrack. I may have gone to my local Nobody Beats the Wiz or Sam Goody or Borders or something soon after seeing it and, and finding it at a better price. Not, by the way, because I wanted like the songs by those bands, but because I wanted the theme song. In fact, I, like, I remember the first track that I listened to when I put the CD into my, to my um, stereo was the theme song. But what I've also got, actually, I've got the official soundtrack, but I also have a, a CD of songs uh, kind of referred to as the unofficial soundtrack. These were in the show but never made it to the soundtrack and it was sent to me by one of the so-called listees back in the early 2000s. I think they were passing around mixtapes for years and somebody burned a bunch of the songs and some of the, the audio tracks from the show, just lines from the show and stuff, onto a CD or CDs at one point and and, and sent that out as well. So I, I ended, ended up with a copy of that. Um, I can't remember who. <laughs> but this includes several sound clips. Like I said, it has I Touch Myself by the Divinals, Down About It by the Lemonheads, Blister in the Sun by Violent Femmes, Fall Down by Toad the Wet Sprocket, What About Your Friends by TLC, and Late at Night by Buffalo Tom, uh, and that closing music, and the song that Angela dances to when Jordan kisses her for the first time, which is another W.G. Snuffy Walden uh, track. I've pointed to it before. I'll say it again. Like I said, go to MSCL.com. They have an entire page of music. But to close this out, because we're going to be coming up on an hour and a half here, and I did a very quick and dirty, <laughs> well, it wasn't that quick, but it was a very 
overview of every episode. Why was the show, why is the show so important to me? It's not easy to answer succinctly. Although since (laughs) this episode's gone on long enough, I'm going to give it a try. Back in 1994, what drew me to this show was the angst of Angela, how her parents were annoying, and the feelings that I was somehow connected to a group of characters who weren't just characters on a television show, but were kind of like people I knew. 20 years later, I've come to see the layering of the show, how you can watch and rewatch episodes, feel a connection with different characters, or see there's a lot more going on than you first realized. I've always considered MSCL to be one of the three shows that make up kind of a holy trinity of teen television shows, the others being the original Degrassi series and Freaks and Geeks. Now, that's my personal opinion. Uh, it's not been sanctioned or notarized by any, any other governing body, but all of those shows seem to me at least to be way more real than what I had been seeing on television at the time. I could always relate to how everyone on these shows was trying to figure out who he or she is or who's trying to navigate the incredibly tumultuous world of being a teenager. And furthermore, the fans, the fandom, which is a big part of the second episode that I'm going to do. I mentioned a couple of times that back in 2000, I was on the hunt for copies of episodes that led to me joining a listserv. Remember those? that had been home to many fans of the show since its inception. The the listserv itself, I think, had been going on since about 94 or 95. And from what I understand, was part of the Save the Show campaign. I joined about five years after the fact. But despite my coming in late, I've made a number of fans in the nearly 15 years since I've been on that list. The list itself is technically still there, although nobody really posts to it. We've kind of all migrated to Facebook and other parts of social media and kind of just talk the way friends talk to each other. And every once in a while, somebody brings up the show, but it's so it's still there. What I wanted to do was kind of bring everybody kind of back on topic for one more time. And what I did was I got a a number of people together, all but one whom I've known for a number of years off the list, one who was, I believe, on the list years before I was. And uh, I got him to sit down for a little bit and talk my so-called life. And that's what the second episode is going to be. Just guest after guest after guest talking about what made this show special to them and talking about what its impact was, the different characters, and hopefully we'll kind of all see why this is such kind of like a landmark piece of television for for so many of us, at least in my generation, and maybe how it also transcends that the the years where it took place, what its timelessness is, and, and, and things like that. So come back next week on next Monday for a look at not just my so-called life, but its impact on its audience, its fans, and how it's still having an, an impact. Until then, thanks for listening, and take care. You have reached the end of another episode of Pop Culture Affidavit. All music, clips, or other material used in this podcast are the property of their respective copyright holders. And as this podcast is intended for entertainment and I make no money off of it, no infringement is intended. Clips, pictures, and show notes can be found at Pop Culture Affidavit, 
a blog where each week I take a look at a random thing in the world of popular culture and give my opinion as well as personal experience and memories I have with it, which is located at popcultureaffidavit.com. Feedback and other comments about this podcast can be sent by email to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. Thank you for listening and come back next time for some more pop culture randomness. If I could put that